The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SupChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and today we'll be featuring a recent discussion I had with Roberto Guidetti, who is the CEO of food and beverage brand Vitasoy. If you've been to China, you've no doubt seen Vitasoy's iconic soy milk, Weitanai, in convenience stores and supermarkets all over China. It's one of Hong Kong's most iconic drink brands and has a very interesting history. It was founded in the 1940s and was truly ahead of its times. The founder's inspiration was to provide a healthy, drinkable protein source for Hong Kong and China, recognizing that the traditional milk industry would not easily work in the region. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Roberto is that today, Vitasoy stands at the intersection of three seemingly inexorable trends. The first is the growth of plant-based food products. The second is the focus on sustainable business that is really gaining traction around the world. And finally is the China market itself. In the interview, we discuss all these topics in detail and how Vitasoy is positioning itself at the fruitful intersection of these trends for the long term. For instance, Roberto reflects on how the global movement for plant-based protein is growing in China and how Vitasoy's different soy milk and tofu products are tailored to different Chinese regions and markets. Furthermore, he also discusses how the company has embraced sustainable business practices in the recent decade, including the farmers that grow the soybeans to how the products are packaged and distributed. Finally, while Italian by birth, Roberto has worked in the greater China region for over 20 years, including stints at P&G and Coke. And he discusses how this diverse set of experiences had in China has been shaped by his unique background and further, based on all of his experiences, what advice he has for those interested in doing business in China. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. 
Roberto, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me, and delighted to be here with you. Great.、Uh, so first, I'd love to just get a little bit of background on Vitasoy. I know it has a long history, and would also love to hear about its current product line. Yeah. So, Chris,、uh, the company was founded in 1940. So we're talking about 80 years ago. The company was founded by Dr. K. S. Law, who is the father of our present chairman. And、uh, it is an interesting beginning because Dr. Law was in Shanghai attending a lecture about the nutrition model that would be most appropriate for China in the future. And what he heard was that the Western model, traditionally leveraging dairy, might not be the most appropriate for China due to the local topography, climate, land, and water. But on the other hand, China for the last four thousand years had had its own cow. And the cow of China was the soybean. So that was that was the what, what gave Dr. Law the idea about starting a business that, in a way, looking at it now, had a bit of a kernel of sustainability at its core. And the first proposition was to start in Hong Kong to provide an affordable soy drink for for the people in Hong Kong, but with the view eventually to then grow and do that for China and beyond. So that happened eight years ago. Then over the, over the decades, obviously the company expanded. Now, from that original product, we have two main lines of business. One line of business is plum milks, and by plum milk we mean、uh, soy, oat, almond, rice, coconut, and a number of iterations and platforms in that category. In addition, we also market tofu, so solid. And、uh, we also have another category that's quite big in our business, which is tea. And tea is ready-to-drink packaged tea that we basically we use the same philosophy of plant milk. We start from the raw material from the field, tea leaves coming to the factories, brewing, and then packaging and selling. So those are the main pillars of the business at the moment. Yeah, thanks so much for that background. It's so interesting, you know. As I've traveled to China a lot over the past ten years or so, the extent to which people have, you know, particularly, you know, sort of middle class people have really been focusing on dairy cow milk. And if you think about scaling that to one point four million people, it's sort of like your founder thinking really not sustainable.、Uh, and you know, as you mentioned, tofu has such a, you know, sort of long standing and deep. Tradition, you know, sort of in, for breakfast, having you know the yotiao and dojiang.、Uh, so, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like the plant or plant-based product soy milk trends in China, because it seems that you know for a while we were moving, China was moving away from that, but now it might be moving back to it. Yeah, sure. Well,、uh, you know that if we start, if we back up and we start from the globe,、uh, the soy milk market. Globally, is is around 7.5 billion U.S. dollars of sales, consumer sales, and growing around 4% CAGR over the last five years. So that's the global picture, right? So 7.5 billion. Now mainland China will be 1.6 billion of the 7.5. So it's very significant. And mainland China over the last five years, as the globe grew 4%, mainland China grew 8% over the last five years. And the reason for that is that. There has always been a fair amount of brands in mainland China operating locally and, say, regionally. You would have some focus on western area or south or north. But as of the last five, we started seeing, in addition to us, the presence of new national competitors. 
So we have companies previously producing a food and beverage portfolio entering the soy meal market with already national infrastructure. We saw also uh, some of the big dairy companies to then provide a plant-based option, and this has been soy uh, as well. Uh, and obviously, as some of these companies with big national infrastructure launch and advertise, this is something that is uh, driving also more awareness and evolving the, the perception of soy from the sort of on-premise, old-style dojiang to actually a nutritional beverage available at different price points and flavors and with the convenience of long shelf life. Yeah, really interesting to hear about how the market is changing. And, and how's that influenced or affected your position? I mean, in some ways it could be the rising tide lifts all boats. You know, you as a really early competitor, really early national competitor, you know, may be benefiting more. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your position in the China market. Yeah, so uh, there has been a lot of change over the last 10 years, uh, because 10 years ago, uh, if we go back, I mean, the whole Vitasoy group was around 500 million US dollars revenue, the whole group. China was then 27% of that, okay? And uh, over the last 10 years, basically China has grown fivefold, and the group has grown twofold. So the group has doubled to almost a billion, 970 million in the last fiscal year results we reported. And of the 970 million, mainland China now represents uh, more than 60%. So this has been uh, because uh, from an original beginning in the southern area, uh, we have then been able to develop a model that enables us to expand in central first and in the eastern area. So now you could say that we are national from an online point of view. You can, you can basically buy and you can receive anywhere. But in terms of physical infrastructure, uh, we still have some way to go. Uh, we're very strong in south, central and east and north and west system, some room. And what has happened to the offering is that from the original sort of classic proposition, now we have a portfolio that is more diversified, not only in terms of variety horizontally, but also in terms of platforms. One of the things that you were, we were talking about dairy before, about China, you're aware that there has been a very successful um, uh, trend on premiumization and adding functional benefit from the original, maybe 20 years earlier, some of the quality crisis that China experienced. Some of these companies were able to, to really step back and reorganize and change the way they were doing business. So as a result of that, when you're looking at the dairy plus plant milk market now, it is a premium market. It's actually quite different from some of the market in the Western world where you still have dairy milk at the base sold for a very low price. And then some premium proposition in mainland China uh, on both dairy and plant milk, the biggest part of the market is a premium market. Huh, that is very interesting. And how about other plant-based sectors beyond just uh, sort of uh, soy milk? I know you have your tofu product. I also like with dairy, you know, you saw such a trend in sort of really emphasizing meat. But again, in recent years, I've been reading a lot that actually there's much more focus on plant-based entrepreneurs, plant-based products. Uh, you see, obviously, this tradition with these Buddhist restaurants that have, you know, sort of fake uh, fake meat. So I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit more about, you know, how you're seeing the trends, you know, is, if it affects your tofu or, you know, just in general, the plant-based trends. No, it's a great observation, Chris. It's a big, I would call it a big transformation. And uh, I recall the days of the of the vegetarian restaurant, the traditional vegetarian restaurant. Right. Uh, I, there has been a significant change in the offering. 
Now, uh, as you know, the stimulus for this is an international stimulus. Uh, we're all aware about beyond, impossible, just all these companies right. are really driving plant-based uh, food uh, very successfully. These companies have started to appear in Hong Kong first and then in the urban metropolitan areas of coastal China. But the thing that is also interesting is that you have a lot of signals that bottom up from entrepreneurs, even locally, there is a lot of energy, a lot of investment. Right. And so, for example, uh, there is a, a, an interesting a group called Green Monday, Green Common, uh, based in Hong Kong, who has now expanded in mainland China and also beyond with a line of uh, called Omni. And this line is providing pork meat alternative, chicken uh, alternative, and also fish. Very successful. Wow. And it's an interesting model because in addition to the retail, they also have their own stores. And there is really the idea of using the stores and using the business to advocate for sustainability and for anticipation and mitigation of climate change. So it's very interesting to see these initiatives starting here. Obviously, these are entrepreneurs who have traveled the world. So they, 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 they were born here. They've been exposed to outside. They're, they're, they're very skilled. And the other thing is that, uh, as you know, you would go to some of the metropolitan areas in Milan China now, you would find a number of restaurants looking vegetarian restaurant, but, but having this extra level of cool and this conceptual positioning on sustainability, which is a bit new, but seems to be very relevant to millennials and Generation Z. Sort of uh, in California, I used to go to True Food. It's that kind of environment. Very, very inspiring, very exciting environment. You're not sacrificing anything on your experience by going to this vegetarian restaurant. On the contrary. Yeah. I've been to a couple high-end vegetarian restaurants, but, I, but I've not seen the same trends that you have yet. I mean, it's interesting. I've heard about, you know, the health benefits, you know, maybe some sort of taste, people wanting to try new things. But, but I think this focus on climate change and sustainability among consumers is not something I've heard yet. So that's, that's really interesting and encouraging because, you know, clearly, you know, China is, is a market where climate change is, should be a big emphasis. Um, interesting. You know, Chris, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a differentiator, a strategic differentiator, where obviously in food and beverages, taste is king. You need to deliver the right. product experience, right? But then once you've done that and you've done your branding work, the idea that you really have a credible story on connected to sustainability is very relevant. And we are looking, we're monitoring these trends among male and Chinese shoppers. And when you're looking at them from an age bracket, age segmentation point of view, you have a graph that looks like the adoption of social media 20 years back. So you have like the 15-year-old, the bar is very high. Then you get to sort of 20, a bit, a bit lower. But then, and then you get to, to people like 40, 40, 50, maybe not there in the space. But uh, uh, we are very certain that this is going to continue to grow double-digit strongly. Also because there is a, a process of mainstreaming of the plant-based movement that goes beyond mainland China. I mean, it's international mm -hmm. and given the connection now, young people, they perceive that. And also government policies is supportive. The government on climate and on, uh, and on uh, healthy eating and, on, and on, on a healthy society is active overtly to endorse this direction. Yeah, really interesting. And, I, and I'm 
really interested to get into your work on sustainability because I know this has been a real focus of yours uh, as CEO. And maybe we can just start at the beginning in some ways of you know, the product uh, to learn about, you know, can you say a little bit about, you know, where your soybeans are produced, you know, how you ensure that they're done so in a sustainable, ecological, you know, fair labor practice way? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, the the approach that we have is local sourcing. And for the great most most of our our volume is local sourcing. So when you're looking at our mail and China business, we source locally, we have contract farming, and, and we do the same in Australia, which is another significant mm-hmm. part. We're not talking Australia here today in detail, but Australia right. is 10% of our business. And uh, we have this model where we basically work with, uh, with farmers, okay, on the soybeans. And it's important to do so because, as you might be aware, there are different varieties, obviously, and different varieties perform differently. And some of the varieties evolve like anything in the world. And in order to maintain a consistent product experience or in order to expand on your product experience, you need to be very, very clear about what are the, the, the performance of these raw materials. We try to avoid adding ingredients and actually leverage the natural right. ingredients that, that we source. We have, we have uh, markets where we use, where we trade, so, for example, in the case of Hong Kong or in the case of Singapore, we would have some uh, volume that is sourced via, via trading. But we would, uh, uh, our approach is to source non-GMO soybeans and certified, and we use Canada for that. Uh, and so, via this combination, we are able to basically satisfy our needs. And uh, we think that it's increasingly important for us to, to have a certain degree of control of the supply chain from the beginning. And uh, that, to your point, links to our ESG goals. Right. So we have classification of suppliers. We have self-assessment and validation of suppliers. And then we also have a pilot that we started of sustainable farming practices that are not only focusing on the outcome of the soybeans, but actually labor practices. We, we, We want to do this, but we also have to do this because some of the customers that we are working with, like the Starbucks or the McDonald's, obviously, like us, have their own ESG criteria and they expect in their certification that we work in this way. So I feel as management team that this is helpful to us because in a way you have no choice. Right. You have to you have to do it because you want to do it, but also you have to do it. And this pushes us a bit harder by benchmarking versus bigger company than ours who are operating globally. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'd love to, to dig in a little bit more around your sustainability. So what are you doing as far as, I don't know, what you're reporting on, climate change, carbon emissions, your packaging, I think, is another unique aspect of your, of your business? Yeah, Chris. So broadly speaking, we are at our seventh sustainability report. We're a listed company in Hong Kong, oh. and uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange in 2014 mandated reporting. That, I have to be forthcoming, was an important point for us because somehow it puts the company into a position where you have to decide whether this is going to be compliance work or whether this is going to be purpose work. Mm -hmm. And obviously, given where we were coming from, it was not just me, but actually the management team all feeling that this is purpose work. And so it is being put at the beginning of the process, not at the end, to comply. And we started 
uh, admittedly, not with the same expertise and competence that we have now, because now we are resourced, we have learned uh, how to do these things. And so we started intuitively from uh, some of the areas that we felt were most material to our business. So for example, one was, we have a framework divided in two pillars. One is called making the right products, and the other one is making products the right way. So making the right products primarily is portfolio, continuous portfolio improvement, i.e., are we uh, making our portfolio plant-based? Now we are 90% of our SKUs are all plant-based. And are we increasing nutrition defined as protein, calcium? And are we decreasing fat and sugar in our portfolio? So we have declared this goal. They are published in our annual report, etc. So that was one vector. And the other vector was energy reduction. So in making products the right way, there are a number of elements. But we started from energy reduction because we felt... This is something that we can track, we can measure, we can benchmark globally. How many liters of water does it take? How many, how many kilowatt of energy? Okay. How much fuel right. are we consuming? So we set targets of reduction by 20% every five years. So we, we are on track to do that. That was the beginning. And as we did that for a couple of years, then we realized that we were really at the very, very beginning of the process and the world of ESG is much, much bigger. And we then resourced the company. And instead of trying to learn ourselves, we hired, we started hiring experts and functional experts, people who had studied at university and practiced this for, for the previous 10 to 15 years. And by doing that, we realized there were other four areas that we needed to work on, or let's say three. One area was policies, because companies uh, have practices, but unless you have a policy and unless the policy is approved by your board of directors and implemented, then you can't guarantee that the company will continue on this positive track. So policies articulation on a number of, on a number of sub subjects and implementation. Then the other area was climate. And on climate, where we are now, to basically go to the point, is that we're doing a climate risk assessment. We have already quantified scope one and scope two, and we are working on quantifying scope three operating in line with the TCFD guidelines as much as possible. Uh, Hong Kong, from a stock market, so stock exchange point of view, bridging the gap versus other more advanced stock exchanges on ESG. So we, we look at the requirements of the Hong Kong stock exchange, but we're also keeping a keen eye on UK and other countries who are, who are doing right. advanced work in this area. And then you mentioned packaging. Um, Packaging is important. We, uh, the great bulk of our uh, outcome is carton. So the great bulk of our products are sold in carton packaging. Now, carton packaging is, uh, is a helpful packaging to, uh, to have on the upstream because the upstream, you can work on carton, which is uh, uh, forest stewardship council certified, right. where you have not deforested as you produce to, to, to have your carton. The opportunity on carton is on the downstream because not in every market you have an infrastructure for recycling and circular economy. And so we are, we are doing some pilots in Hong Kong on there, and it is an error opportunity. You want to avoid that these used packs go to landfill. So that's, that's the gap that right. needs to be addressed. And then in the case of plastic, which is a small part of our business, we have some, uh, some plastic. And uh, we have started basically pilot for uh, recycle PT in Hong Kong. We're selling mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. We also we have a water portfolio. We're selling water. That is all moved to recycle PT. And we are this year moving to recycle PT also on, on Vitasoy. And uh, okay. obviously the straw, the straw and the plastic straw, there has been a lot of, lot of talk about that. So we have a pilot for paper straw. But actually, we're also working in a way where there is media coverage of certain issues. And then there are some other issues which are really material. 
and really making a bigger difference in a context of achieving carbon neutrality over the next, let's say, 20 years. And so we try and stay focused on outcomes which are really substantial, whilst keeping an eye on where the public sentiment is as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, the decision to put it in a car, in a, in a pack, as opposed to a plastic bottle, um, you know, you know, like your teas, for instance. I think many of the competitors for those products probably are in a plastic bottle, if I'm guessing right. And I think your, some of your teas are are in the in the packs. Is that driven by cost, sustainability issues? You know, wh- wh- why do you why why do you continue to focus on the pack? Well, Chris, is a, it's an interesting question because I, I mean, in my background before joining Vitasoy, I'd observed this market in mainland China, uh, the tea market. The tea market, basically nine out of 10 is plastic right. because a lot of the, a lot of the market, um, uh, a lot of consumption is on the go import consumption, convenience stores and mom and pop stores, et cetera. And so as a result of that, I think it was like more of a business model without thinking maybe about the sustainability implications. This, this industry also in mainland China started like 30 years ago. As a result, there is a fair amount of plastic. Now, we didn't at the beginning in mainland China, we didn't have a plastic line. And so what happened was, well, we think our product on tea is very differentiated. We think it's very good. We're going to sell it. And then we're going to see. And it was interesting to see. Now, we have eventually need to also have plastic, okay, as part of the portfolio, though the majority is carton, right. but carton, carton has not been an obstacle for the keen shopper who likes our product to actually buy. And so mm-hmm. there is a situation where a company can, at the beginning of the process, deliberately make certain choices. And I think it's pretty advisable at the moment to really have a long-term view when you make these choices, because these lines are expensive and it's not so easy to then say, we're going to do something else now, right? And right. so starting, starting with a comprehensive ESG view and then business being part of that will help to actually make sure that the long-term choices are correct in terms of us being deliberate because of our purpose, but also because the market demand and the government regulation is going to change. Right. Interesting. Uh, well, which, what's your sense from the government, either both in Hong Kong and in mainland China? You know, clearly the Chinese government has had a lot of very public announcements about, you know, peak carbon 2030, uh, you know, carbon neutrality by, um, by 2060. In the last number of five-year plans have really focused on, you know, in, in innovation in the environmental sector. Uh, what's your, how are you seeing the government supporting sustainability within the food and beverage sector that you're in? Well, um, uh, first of all, it is a serious intent. It is certainly serious intent. We have uh, uh, offices in mainland China and also have factories in mainland China in different provinces. And therefore, it is possible for us not only to engage with central government, but also have some of this conversation that gives us a bit of a view about the implementation or about the pattern of adoption. So it is serious intent. Um, the, the, what, we have, what we have observed in the past is that the, the policy and the determination might take a bit of time to be prepared and to be aligned, given the magnitude mm-hmm. of the country we're talking about. But once it is done, the deployment is immediate and fast to the point where the grace period normally, that's probably a difference with some other 
some other institution or some other countries where we operate, where you tend to get the visibility a bit earlier, but then the process might be a bit long. Once you then the decision is made, you're given maybe a year or two grace period. That is not the situation in mainland China. Once the decision is made, the grace period is like a quarter. Right. Yeah. And so that, 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 yeah, that sort of uh, forces you to really be close to the, but again, it, it, there is serious intent. And so for the companies who is professional in this is quite, uh, is relatively straightforward to understand where this is headed. And again, as you say, it is, it, it is headed in that direction, which is a good direction. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Well, super interesting to hear about you like this focused on plant-based and also your ESG work. Uh, I'd like to turn now a little bit to your career, you as a person. So, you know, you're, I think, born and raised in Italy, work experience at P&G and Coca-Cola, now CEO of a large public Hong Kong um, a beverage company, food and beverage company. How, how has your background prepared you for where you are now? Well, the Procter and Gamble, let's say the Procter and Gamble and the, and the Coca-Cola, um, having, having worked for two, two companies like that uh, has been um, very important, obviously. I mean, in the case of, of, of P&G, again, we're talking about the 90s when I entered in Italy and then UK and then China. Right. This was what enabled the path, but in, in the path, in the idea about becoming then a person who spends a couple of decades in China, what happened before was also helpful, which was the opportunity to be in a company that is normally thinking very strategically, that is very good on human resources, training and building an organization. And that gives you the opportunity to network and uh, learn how to work effectively with other people, no matter their location, ethnicity, or, 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 or culture, okay? So that was really an incredible asset from Procter & Gamble uh, that they have. Uh, Coke was interesting. I spent six years in mainland China, and it was an incredible experience. I think the, the complementarity was, again, a very professional organization, was the, the, the focus on execution. Obviously, the portfolio is, Coke is a different company. P&G has multiple categories. Coca-Cola is a right. beverage company, right? And so the focus that they have on executing a portfolio that is wide in beverages, but actually not so wide in terms of multi-category is incredible. To the person who has not been in Coca-Cola to try to conceive that a company can operate like that. <laughs> uh, and being literally in millions of outlets and having plants in every province and thereby you have the opportunity to go everywhere. I think that the other thing that was interesting was, was uh, creating and managing joint ventures. Because even in Vitasoy now, we have two joint ventures. And so obviously okay. having experienced that in Coca-Cola was helpful. And I would say the, the training that you get as a professional and the, and the, and the fortune uh, to, to basically be in mainland China during those years, I think the last 20 years have been very unique, in, in a way unrepeatable. China now is uh, a very, very sophisticated market uh, right. is very fast changing. In a way, you would not have the time to learn now as much as you had in the previous decades where you would have a bit of room to sort of settle your, your, your legs under the table and then learn. Now, you know, if you don't speak Chinese, if you've not lived in China before, uh, it's not so straightforward to succeed, frankly. Right. Yeah, I'm curious along those lines about, you know, there's been a shift and a few of the other guests I've had on this show have talked about it from, you know, this sort of expat model where people would come over, you know, from the headquarters, you know, 
jump in for a number of years and and lead and manage uh, to to one where you know it's much more locals both you know because the companies want to localize more but then also just the human capital over the past 20 years among the Chinese has, has grown tremendously. I'm, I'd love to hear your reflections, given your experience on how the sort of leadership of these large multinationals is changing to becoming more localized or not. I mean, personally, and, and, and as a company, I should say, we really believe in local management. In all our units, uh, um, uh, the management is local. From uh, th- this, is, this is the way it was. And we think that in the context of mainland China, uh, the sophistication, the uniqueness of the market, the fact that now you have this online uh, proliferation and mushrooming makes uh, the, the, the navigation for a person who is not, was not born there, who doesn't speak the language, not only speaking the language, but actually really understanding the nuances of the culture, I think is right. a real challenge unless you really have a local team that supports you. So. Then when, you, when you're talking about the local manager you would want to have, our experience is obviously functional competence you need to have. And the good news is that because of the fact that uh, uh, there are a number of professionals who have grown with multinational and, and big Chinese companies now, functional competence is available. I think one of the things that we're looking for is being, quote unquote, in touch, i.e. China sometimes cannibalizes your attention. You forget there is a world outside of it. And what's happened outside of mainland China, for example, in our industry, is incredibly important. So the trends on plant milk or, or alternative protein are global and are advanced, more advanced in the Western world than in mainland China at the moment. So you need even have a local person to really have a sense of that and a passion and a keen interest to understand that. I think one of the things that we look at when we hire is purpose-driven. Mm-hmm. Does the fact that we do tasty, nutritious, plant-based, sustainable food and beverages matter to you? Or this just another job? Right. I mean, it's difficult to be a startup when you have 8,000 employees, but we would love our employees to have an identification with our purpose. And the other last two things, Chris, I would say is uh, digital, digital, passionate digital understanding and mastery, and then collaboration. I mean, if the tech part and the collaboration part works together with functional competence in touch and purpose, I think these are the ingredients where if you have local management like this, you'll be successful. Yeah, that's a, that's a tall order though. I think (laughs) I'm I'm curious uh, what you find either in your hiring or the factories you operate in different places or the products you have, you know, China is such a diverse vast market and and certainly i mean just you know the north and south is an obvious difference and you know hong kong obviously very embedded in the southern culture are there any other sort of products that you would tailor to different markets or is it similar you know the 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 soy milk or the tea that you formulate sort of is able to flow throughout china yeah i'd say chris it's modular in the sense that you will have certain platforms, and I'll give a specific example. You will have a platform like our Barista product, the one that goes into coffee shop, is a product that is specially formulated to go together with coffee. Now, this is the same, uh, not only North and South, but even Australia, Singapore, Philippines, and mainland China Hong Kong is the same product, right? And it works, okay? Because it goes together with with, with a certain companion, 
that is meant to be relatively stable and the usage occasion is very clear. So this will be mm-hmm. standard. It doesn't mean that it doesn't evolve, things evolve, but it's relatively standard across markets, not only within China. Then you have uh, uh, items which are partially um, common, like for example, when you're looking at our original product was designed eight years ago, it's a soy milk that is uh, a wellness drink, but it's basically a beverage. That is actually, does require changes if we market it in continental Asia. And uh, okay. basically you might have different level of success. For example, in mainland China, in the North, their industry and in the East much stronger. And so we are a bit stronger in the South than in the North, right? And this is something that is sort of structural. And then you will have some unique uh, platforms that really tailor to the state of the market and the shopper where you are competing. So for example, we would have on Vitasoy, in every market we compete, we have a high nutrition platform that we enhance with calcium and protein. But the, the kind of formula and the kind of presentation to the customers is different because where they are coming from and where they and what they want in the context of their competitive set is a bit different. And if you don't change it, it won't work. So it's modular. Yeah, that, that's 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 really interesting, particularly, you know, this idea that, you know, the dairy, you know, how it also tracks to the dairy industry um, as well and sort of you're stronger in places where, where that is not as, as developed. So very interesting. Uh, you mentioned at the outset that, that I think over 60% of your sales are in mainland China. And uh, you also have, I think, Australia, other places. You know, it seems that Hong Kong is, you know, a, a lower amount of your sales than, than previously. I'm wondering, you know, what, what's your thinking on the future outlook for Hong Kong, both for your product, but then also uh, more generally? Yes, I mean, Chris, you're correct. I mean, Hong Kong, uh, again, we go back 10 years ago, and Hong Kong was bigger than mainland China. So China's grown fivefold. Right. Obviously, Hong Kong wouldn't grow fivefold because the per capita consumption is already very high on, on soy milk. You're talking about every person in Hong Kong drinking more than 10 liters every year. Okay, it's very, very wow. high. So in a market like this, then you pay a lot of attention on and in your model, in your growth model on innovation. And so expansion is relative in the sense that, for example, I was talking about the coffee channel. There is an expansion opportunity. Execution is always an opportunity, but actually innovation is very critical for a market like Hong Kong. And uh, um, if you then have innovation, then we look at Hong Kong as a growth market. So it will not grow... 20, 30% every year, but we, in our, in our growth strategy, mid single digit every year, that will be our goal that we are trying to achieve. We are quite uh, optimistic that this is possible because uh, Hong Kong is a market where when you have the right innovation, uh, the level of competence you have, the level of infrastructure that you have uh, is still very good. Okay, obviously it's common now to talk more about Shanghai and some other markets which are growing, Shenzhen and Guangzhou are growing so fast, but Hong Kong still retains a very, very strong infrastructure education system. So for a company to operate here, we're quite, we're quite positive and bullish about it. We have the Greater Bay Area project that is coming through. And therefore, we think that like any opportunity, it also depends on the willingness of any person to go for it, right? But but mm-hmm. there is a framework, there is a business framework that in terms of career, in terms of like uh, growth, seems to be very favorable going forward. That's the way we look at it. 
Yeah, interesting. I've, I've heard that from some of the other guests, too. Some of the other actually U.S.-based companies where their sort of Asia headquarters in Hong Kong also sort of similar reasons why they are, feel very strong about sort of Hong Kong into the future, too. So very interesting. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned, uh, you know, it, it's a market where you're doing a lot of innovation. You know, you mentioned sort of the coffee products as, as an innovation that you had had a bit ago. Like, wh what sort of new products do you, do you have coming down the pike or are you thinking about for a place like Hong Kong? Now, for example, one of the things that we did this year, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, we launched uh, a tea uh, platform, a new tea platform that is all uh, fresh, meaning it doesn't go through the ultra heat treatment process and uh, is basically a short shelf life. Given the kind of cloud that we have in distribution we have here in convenience stores and given the kind of manufacturing infrastructure we have, we can do it. And this has been really, really welcome because there is, there is something to say for having short shelf life in the production process. Somehow certain elements of the product experience are enhanced. Like we have a, a lemon product. We have a, a green tea product. Very favorably uh, welcome. We launched uh, a um, product called Vita Oat. So we already have in Hong Kong the Australian propositions. But we felt that it was important to also provide an old product, given the trend now, that is uh, mm -hmm. priced in a very affordable manner for everyone to really familiarize with the benefits of this, uh, of this, uh, of this raw material. So we think that when we're looking at soy and oat from the point of view of sustainability, they're quite similar in having a very, very small uh, footprint. Land requirement, water requirement, emission very, very low. I think we still look at soy maybe a bit more favorably because soy has naturally more protein in it. But we, have, we, are, we, are, we are interested in also developing the oat here, not just in Australia or Singapore or other markets. So those, those are a couple of examples. And we try more and more to identify items that we believe might be launched in Hong Kong with the view that they have broader appeal than just Hong Kong. And so Vita Oat, we're also doing in mainland China. Great. And I know, I mean, my exposure to oat milk has been mainly through coffee shops. I mean, I think that's yes. probably another really good, um, you know, really good avenue. That's great. Uh, my last question that, that I frequently ask folks is, and I'm really interested to hear from you, given your experience in many different multinationals, you know, two decades about, uh, you know, sort of China and Asia experience. You know, if people want to come in now, be it sort of individuals, entrepreneurs or companies, you know, what advice would you have for those different groups on how to enter China and do business in China? Well, look, uh, a few things, if we have a couple of minutes, because this is a very important sure, question, yes. and there yeah, is so definitely. much coverage on it, right? And I would say, first of all, Chris, I would say, do it. Do it. It's an exciting, is a big, exciting market with a lot of opportunities. That would be the first thing I would like to say, because there is positive coverage sometimes, there is negative coverage. It's not the easiest market. You cannot just come in and reapply what you're doing elsewhere for the next 10 years and assuming that that is going to work. That's not the way it works anymore. But still, it must be the biggest opportunity there is. Now, the, the, the sort of a few observations on, 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 on this would be preparation. So the homework, the market has a level of sophistication in terms of local offering, in terms of like local international PE and, and venture capital investment coming in to support even, even in our sector on food and beverages, which is remarkable, which is remarkable. And so the preparation about studying the market, 
and making sure that there is a proposition that is uh, innovative and also is innovative in, in its DNA, but he has already the, the kernels for innovation going forward. This needs to be done, and this needs to be done with a fair amount of investment, because unless you are on site, it's very difficult from doing outside and rely on some consultancy. So preparation. Right. The second point I would make is piloting. Uh, mainland China now is very exciting. Originally, it was always exciting, even in the pre-digital days, because you would have, as you said, differences across this vast country, and you could decide to to isolate a province or to isolate a city and, and perfect your model over there and expand it. So this piloting and now the arrival of digital infrastructure enables this to be done, reducing the risk level significantly and having in real time shopper data return and customer feedback in return. This is very exciting. So higher level of difficulty, but higher, more tools to be able to actually do it. The other thing that we just touched uh, together is building a local team. Building a local team. Uh, there is always the temptation maybe to have some trusted professionals to go there first. And uh, so we are sure that we know what's going on. But unless it's very, very important to build a local team. And the last thing I would say is be there yourself. Be there yourself. So I wasn't able to, to go. Uh, I'm assuming you also have not been able to go for a while, right? No, Given the current right. situation. I haven't been able to go, Chris, for uh, 18 months. And then finally, uh, in Hong Kong, the visa started being available again. And I'm, I'm off now. Um, uh, I've done uh, two months, eight cities. And it's incredible to observe over the last 18 months the level of change at all levels, wow. uh, not only professionally, but in terms of society. And it's very difficult to convey unless you're there on the ground. And, and ideally, you also have a few benchmarks. You go to different cities. And then you have a benchmark, then you come back and you say, all right, now I get it. I've sort of resynchronized. Okay. It's a sort of software mm -hmm. upgrade. I'm, I'm now resynchronized. And normally right. the way we operate is that I would spend at least 10 days of my time every month in mainland China. This has not been possible with COVID. And so now it's going to be like this, let's say a month and a half, quarantine plus a month and a half round trips. Very important to be there in person. This will be my, my observations on the matter. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, over the past, you know, 10 years or so that I've been traveling to China, I mean, it's, you just really can't understand it unless you're there. So um, I'd love to hear any sort of insights you have, like you mentioned things, having visited there, things are, are different in, in a way. Do you have any sort of key, key nuggets of, 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 of what you've observed? Uh, perhaps not nuggets, but uh, some observations. Yes, I think, first of all, I would say, uh, the quarantine and the way it was managed was incredible. The professionalism, the perfection in which uh, once you arrive to Pudong Airport, the way this is managed uh, is incredible. It's very technology focused. I think probably the fact that uh, mainland China is also a pool of human resources that it can draw upon to right. be able to manage such a system. But that is very, very impressive, the way it is managed. And obviously, after your 14 days, you go out. And as you go out, you are in an environment where the energy and the optimism, the pride and the looking forward is perceivable. Is perceivable. Mm -hmm. I cannot say the same for any country that nowadays we might be visiting. There are certain countries maybe going through some different, different stages, 
But you perceive this enthusiasm, this, uh, this belief in the future that I would say once you get to a certain level of per capita development or a certain level of development, it doesn't always happen that it's being retained. Right. And that is really impressive. I have to say I was, I'm used to it normally, but I was, I was quite hit by that. And then again, everything is digital. Mm -hmm. Everything is digital. And uh, so I had to rely on some friends to understand what are the latest apps yeah, that you need right. to have. Uh, and again, I'm speaking Chinese, but I'm, I'm not writing. Uh, and therefore, again, the, the, there are some hurdles in you to fully, uh, to fully get it. But th these will be some, some of the observations, sort of like uh, a, a marked optimism, a resilience, uh, confidence in the future, uh, tech being very, very big. And again, we talked a bit about sustainability, etc. Not at that level yet. But you, 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 the people you encounter, uh, um, are th th there is a level of, of, of professionalism, belief and energy that is remarkable. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for that's, I think, a great way to, to end our discussion. So, so Roberto, I really want to thank you so much for joining us today on China Corner Office. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure and all the best for the show.